Chapter Twelve of The Dragon and the Raven by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. The Dragon and the Raven by G. A. Henty. Chapter Twelve. Four Years of Peace. Seven weeks afterwards, Guthorn, accompanied by thirty of his noblest warriors, entered Alfred's camp, which was pitched at Aller, a place not far from Athelney. An altar was erected and a solemn service performed, and Guthorn and his companions were all baptized, Alfred himself becoming sponsor for Guthorn, whose name was changed to Athelstan. The Danes remained for twelve days in the Saxon camp. For the first eight they wore, in accordance with the custom of the times, the Chrismal, a white linen cloth put on the head when the rite of baptism was performed. On the eighth day the solemn ceremony known as the chrism, the loosening or removal of the cloths, took place at Wedmore. This was performed by the Eldorman Ethelmnoth. During these twelve days many conferences were held between Alfred and Ethelstan as to the future of the two kingdoms. While the Danes were still in the camp, a Whitnagamot, or Saxon parliament, was held at Wedmore. At this Athelstan and many of the nobles and inhabitants of East Anglia were present, and the boundary of the two kingdoms was settled. It was to commence at the mouth of the Thames, to run along the river Lea to its source, and at Bedford turn to the right along the Ouse as far as Watling Street. According to this arrangement a considerable portion of the kingdom of Mercia fell to Alfred's share. The treaty comprehended various rules for the conduct of commerce, and the courts were instituted for the trials of disputes and crimes. The Danes did not at once leave Mercia, but for a considerable time lay in camp at Circinchester, but all who refused to become Christians were ordered to depart beyond the seas, and the Danes gradually withdrew within their boundary. Guthorn's conversion, although no doubt brought about at the moment by his admiration of the clemency of Alfred, had probably been for some time projected by him, mingling, as his people did in East Anglia with the Christian Saxons there. He must have had opportunities for learning the nature of their tenets, and of contrasting its mild and beneficent teaching with the savage worship of the pagan gods. By far the greater proportion of his people followed their king's example, but the wilder spirits quitted the country, and under their renowned leader Hasting, sailed to harry the shores of France. The departure of the more turbulent portion of his followers rendered it more easy for the Danish king to carry his plans into effect. After the holding of the Witten, Edmund and Egbert at once left the army with their followers, and for some months the young Eldorman devoted himself to the work of restoring the shattered homes of his people, aiding them with loans from the plunder he had gained on the seas, Alfred having at once repaid him the sums which he had lent at Athelney. As so many of his followers had also brought home money after their voyage, the work of rebuilding and restoration went on rapidly, and in a few months the marks left of the ravages by the Danes had been well-nigh effaced. Flocks and herds again grazed in the pastures, Herds of swine roamed in the woods, the fields were cultivated, and the houses rebuilt. In no part of Wessex was prosperity so speedily re-established as in the district round Sherborne, governed by Edmund. The dragon was thoroughly overhauled and repaired, for none could say how soon fresh fleets of the Northmen might make their appearance upon the southern shores of England. It was not long indeed before the Northmen reappeared, a great fleet sailing up the Thames at the beginning of the winter. It ascended as high as Fulham, where a great camp was formed. Seeing that the Saxons and East Anglians would unite against them, did they advance further, the Danes remained quietly in their encampment during the winter, and in the spring again took ship and sailed for France. 
For the next two years England enjoyed comparative quiet, the Danes turning their attention to France and Holland, sailing up the Maas, the Scheldt, the Somme, and the Seine. Spreading from these rivers they carried fire and sword over a great extent of country. The Franks resisted bravely, and in two pitched battles defeated their invaders with great loss. The struggle going on across the Channel was watched with great interest by the Saxons, who at first hoped to see the Danes completely crushed by the Franks. The ease, however, with which the Northmen moved from point to point in their ships gave them such immense advantage that their defeats at Hassel and Socourt in no way checked their depredations. Appearing suddenly off the coast, or penetrating into the interior by a river, their hordes would land, ravage the country, slay all who opposed them, and carry off the women and children captives, and would then take to their ships again before the leaders of the Franks could assemble an army. Alfred spent this time of repose in restoring as far as possible the loss and damage which his kingdom had suffered. Many wise laws were passed, churches were rebuilt, and order restored. Great numbers of the monks and wealthier people who had fled to France in the days of the Danish supremacy now returned to England, which was, for the time, freer from danger than the land in which they had sought refuge, and many Franks from the districts exposed to the Danish ravages came over and settled in England as well. Gradually the great part of England acknowledged the rule of Alfred. The kingdom of Kent was again united to that of Wessex, while Mercia, which extended across the centre of England from Anglia to Wales, was governed for Alfred by Ethelred the Eldorman, who was the head of the powerful family of the Wiccas, and had received the hand of Alfred's daughter, Ethelfleda. He ruled Mercia according to his own laws and customs, which differed materially from those of the West Saxons, and which prevented a more perfect union of the two kingdoms, until William the Conqueror welded the whole country into a single whole. But Ethelred acknowledged the supremacy of Alfred, consulted him upon all occasions of importance, and issued all his edicts and orders in the king's name. He was ably assisted by Werfrith, the Bishop of Worcester. The energy and activity of these leaders enabled Mercia to keep abreast of Wessex in the onward progress, which Alfred laboured so indefatigably to promote. Edmund, when not occupied with the affairs of his earldom, spent much of his time with the king, who saw in him a spirit of intelligence and activity which resembled his own. Edmund was, however, of a less studious disposition than his royal master, and though he so far improved his education as to be able to read and write well, Alfred could not persuade him to undertake the study of Latin, being, as he said, well content to master some of the learning of that people by means of the king's translations. At the end of another two years of peace, Edmund was again called upon to take up arms. Although the Danes attempted no fresh invasion, some of their ships hung around the English coast, capturing vessels, interfering with trade, and committing other acts of piracy. Great complaints were made by the inhabitants of the seaports to Alfred. The king at once begged Edmund to fit out the dragon, and, collecting a few other smaller ships, he took his place on Edmund's ship and sailed in search of the Danes. After some search they came upon the four large ships of the Northmen which had been a scourge to the coast. The Saxons at once engaged them, and a desperate fight took place. The dragon was laid alongside the largest of the Danish vessels, and the king, with Edmund and Egbert by his side, leaped onto the deck of the Danish vessel, followed by the crew of the dragon. The Danish ship was crowded with men who fought desperately, but the discipline even more than the courage of Edmund's crew secured for them the victory. For a time each fought for himself, and although inspired by the presence of the king, they were able to gain no advantage, being much outnumbered by the Northmen. Edmund, seeing this, 
sounded on his horn the signal with which in battle he ordered the men to form their wedge. The signal was instantly obeyed. The Saxons were all fighting with boarding-pikes against the Northmen's swords and axes, for they had become used to these weapons and preferred them to any other. The instant Edmund's horn was heard, each man desisted from fighting and rushed to their leader, around whom they instantly formed in their accustomed order. The Danes, astonished at the sudden secession of the battle, and understanding nothing of the meaning of the signal, or of the swift movement of the Saxons, for a minute lowered their weapons in surprise. Before they again rushed forward the formation was complete, and in a close body with levelled spears the Saxons advanced, Egbert as usual leading the way with Edmund and the king in the centre. In vain the Danes strove to resist the onset. In spite of their superior numbers they were driven back step by step until crowded in a close mass at one end. Still the Saxon line of spears pressed on. Many of the Danes leapt into the sea. Others were pushed over or run through, and in a few minutes not a Northman remained alive in the captured vessel. In the meantime the battle was raging in other parts. Two of the small vessels were engaged with one of the Danes at close quarters, while the other ships hung around the remaining Danish vessels and kept up volleys of arrows and javelins upon them. The dragon at once went to the assistance of the two Saxon ships, whose crews were almost overpowered by the Northmen. Laying the ship alongside, Edmund boarded the Danes. The Northmen rushed back from the decks of the Saxon ship to defend their own vessel, and the Saxons, regaining courage, at once rallied and followed them. The combat was short but desperate. Attacked on three sides, the Danes were speedily overcome and were slaughtered to a man. An attack was next made upon the two remaining vessels. These resisted for some time, but they were overwhelmed by the missiles from the Saxon flotilla, and the greater portion of their crews being killed or wounded, their commanders prayed for mercy, which was granted them by Alfred, and with the four captured vessels the fleet returned to England. On reaching port Alfred begged Edmund to continue for a while with the dragon, to cruise along the coasts, and to stop the depredations of the Danes. And for some weeks the dragon kept the seas. She met with considerable success, capturing many Danish galleys. Some of these contained rich spoil which had been gathered in France, for cruising in the seas off Dover, Edmund intercepted many of the Danish vessels on their homeward way from raids up the Seine, Garonne, and other French rivers. One day, in the excitement of a long pursuit of a Danish galley, which finally succeeded in making her escape, Edmund had paid less attention than usual to the weather, and, on giving up the chase as hopeless, perceived that the sky had become greatly overcast while the wind was rising rapidly. "'We are in for a storm from the north, Egbert,' he said and we must make for the mouth of the Thames for shelter. The sails were lowered, and the dragon's head turned west. Before two hours had passed, the sea had risen so greatly that it was no longer possible to row. What had we best do? Edmund asked the chief of the sailors. Think you that we can make Dover and shelter under the cliffs there? I fear that we cannot do so, the sailor replied, for there are terrible sands and shallows off the Kentish coast, between the mouth of the Thames and Dover and the wind blows so strongly that we can do naught but run before it. "'Then let us do so,' Edmund replied. "'Anything is better than being tossed at the mercy of the waves.' A sail was hoisted, and the dragon flew along before the wind. The storm increased in fury, and for some hours the vessel ran before it. She was but a short distance from the French coast, and as the wind veered round more to the west, her danger became great. "'I fear we shall be cast ashore,' Edmund said to the sailor. Fortunately, the man answered, we are but a mile or two from the mouth of the Seine, and there we can run in and take shelter. It was an anxious time until they reached the mouth of the river. 
for they were continually drifting nearer and nearer to the coast. However, they cleared the point in safety, and, turning her head, ran up the river and soon anchored under the walls of Havre. As she came to an anchor, armed men were seen crowding the walls. "'They take us for Danes,' Egbert said. "'We had best hoist the dragon, and they will then know that we are a Saxon ship.' Soon after the flag was hoisted, the gates of the town were seen to open, and an officer and some men issued out. These launched a boat and rowed out to the ship. The officer mounted to the deck. He was evidently in considerable fear, but as he saw the Saxons standing about unarmed, he was reassured. "'Is this really a Saxon ship?' he asked. "'As its flag testifies?' "'It is so,' Edmund replied. "'It is my vessel, and I am an Eldorman of King Alfred. We have been chasing the Danish pirates, but this storm having arisen, we were blown down the French coast and forced to seek shelter here.' "'The governor bids you welcome,' the officer said, "'and bade me invite you to land.' "'That will I gladly, the more so since my ship has suffered some damage in the gales, her bulwarks having been partly shattered, and it will need a stay of a few days here to repair her for sea. Will you tell the governor that in a short time I will land with my kinsman Egbert, and accept his hospitality?' An hour later Edmund and Egbert landed, and were at once conducted to the governor, who welcomed them most cordially. They found there many whom they had known at the court of King Alfred. The wealthier men, the bishops and the thanes, had for the most part journeyed to Paris, or to other towns in the interior, to escape the dreaded Northmen, but there were many detained in Havre for want of funds to journey farther. "'It is a sad pity,' the governor said, as they talked over the troubled state of Western Europe, "'that your English king and our Frankish monarch did not make common cause against these sea-robbers. They are the enemies of mankind.' Not only do they ravage all our coasts, but they have entered the Mediterranean, and have plundered and ravaged the coasts of Provence and Italy, laying towns under ransom, burning and destroying. "'I would that I could meet some of their ships on their way back from Italy,' Edmund said. "'I warrant that we should obtain a rare booty, with gems of art such as would delight King Alfred, but are thrown away on these barbarians. But I agree with you that it is shameful that the coasts of all Europe should be overrun with these pirates.' "'Yes,' the governor replied. "'If every country in Christendom would unite against their common foe "'and send a quota of ships and men, "'we would drive the black raven from the seas, "'and might even land on the Danish shores "'and give them a taste of the sufferings they have inflicted elsewhere. "'As it is, all seem paralyzed. "'Local efforts are made to resist them, "'but their numbers are too great to be thus withstood. "'I wonder that the Pope does not call Christendom to arms "'against these pagan robbers.' who not only destroy towns and villages, but level to the ground of the holy shrines, and slay the ministers of God on the altars. End of chapter 12. Recording by Mike Harris.